Thanks so much, guys. It's been uh, really great getting to know you and uh, just just meeting some people and talking. What a fantastic church this is, and what a great place. It's so encouraging. Maybe it's because I've been in New Zealand a little too long. I don't know. But it's so encouraging to find nice, good, biblical, awesome churches. And uh, I just want to send everyone to that church when I find churches like that. So I feel like this is what we have and very thankful for Pat and Mike and the ministries. So anyway, all of that to say I feel honored to be with you now and um, to have the opportunity to serve you with the word trying to rack my brain for thinking about some sort of spaghetti western I could use to open, but I, but I thought that'd be too far, you know, I'm just going to leave it alone. Uh, for my text, I wanted to choose something that was kind of related to uh, the conference. I, I'm aware that not everyone was there, um, and so kind of wanted to just rope you in a little bit to the, the kinds of things we were talking about anyway, and yet not repeat what we were saying uh, for those who were, were uh, yesterday, I suppose, for, for my sessions particularly. And, um, and so John 14 came to mind. John 14, the first a few verses, one to six. And um, the reason I went there is because it's a great way to kind of capture many of the things we've been saying, but prior to the cross... And in the way only Jesus can teach it, you know, uh, you'd have to boil all of that down to just a few lines and, and really a profound bit of encouragement for his disciples. You have to remember, just before we read the text, that um, what you have here is, is a, this falls within a greater section where Jesus is now preparing the disciples for these things that are going to happen not to, not only a few hours from this point. Uh, we know he has instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. He's washed the feet of the disciples, symbolizing what would come in his, in his death for them. We even read of his agitation of spirit, warning that one of them would betray. Uh, he spoke of the betrayal of Peter, or at least uh, the denial of Peter directly before the passage that we'll look at. And that's important. I'll come back to that later. Uh, so certainly the disciples are starting to get the feeling that something climactic is happening. Something is on the way, right? And uh, my goodness, no matter what they prepare themselves for, no one, I mean, who could brace themselves for the hours that would be ahead, right? Uh, where they would see their Messiah crucified. Um, their faith would be tested in ways that are hard for us, I think, even to imagine. But that's important for us to think about as we read these words up front. Because Jesus is using this time to encourage them for that. It just adds a new level of gravitas to the words when you think about it that way. He's fortifying them for that. And um, right through the passage, you see this unrest of the disciples. They're asking these frantic questions. And then Jesus calmly, with purpose, moving them through exactly what he wants them to think about at this point. So with that in mind, hopefully a little bit of a preface there. Let's read the text together. John 14, verse 1. We'll go to verse 6, and then we'll pray. This is the word of God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again. I will, sorry, come again and will take you to myself. 
that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, what precious words we have before us. And we realize, realize our inadequacy in being able to fathom their meaning, their learn, be encouraged as we should without your help. We know we need your spirit with us, working in and through the word. Same Holy Spirit that inspired these words. We need you to illumine our hearts and minds, to understand, to grasp, so that we might be encouraged in this way. So that whatever comes... We know what it is that you would say to us, and we know what the central truth is all about, and that we have an anchor in that very truth. We ask that you would bless this time and be with us now powerfully in and through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. It's an amazing section of scripture, isn't it? Just reading it, and, and of course it's amazing because we're going through to this climax climactic moment in the the gospel account, of course, the, the cross. But especially in light of what we've been talking about throughout the weekend, I mean, we see it's climactic because it's really getting to the the whole point of the story from Genesis 3.15 all the way through. You were finally getting to the point where the serpent head is going to be crushed and Jesus is going to bring in the fulfillment of that which was promised right after the fall. And yet, even though it's so climactic, the disciples themselves, I mean, you, you almost think, well, they would be enraptured at this point, right? Like, Jesus is about to do the thing promised, but they're, they're, in a, they're not in a good place at all. And there are a few reasons for that. I mean, some of them really practical. Number one, they're, they're really scared, right? They're meeting in secret already. That's an unnerving experience if you've ever done that before, right? The cops are out to get you, so to speak. And uh, there you are. You know people are looking for you. You'll be in trouble if you're meeting. And it's an unnerving experience. They're meeting in secret. They're scared. Secondly, we know from the directly preceding passage, Jesus has just told them that they're going to let him down big time. And who of us would feel immune at that point? I mean, can you imagine being in the room right there? I mean, I know I would not feel, you know how it is when someone accuses someone else of something and then you feel like I'm going to try not to look guilty and you just, we're all too insecure. And imagine, I mean, they would have been thinking just the other day we were arguing about how great we were in front of Jesus and, and probably feeling a sense of shame and maybe it is us. And you know, there's a lot to unnerve you in that idea. That's happening. Third, they're very confused about the way this all works, the leaven of the Pharisees and so forth, and, and that Jesus is now going to bring in the political kingdom, right? And then after that, we're going to go get the Romans, finally, get, the, get rid of the Romans, isn't that the plan? And then set up the geopolitical kingdom, and then finally Israel can be what it was. Then why are you talking about going away all the time and suffering, and what's that all about? Right? They've got a lot to work through. So that's confusing. Fourth, 
Jesus is now committed and explicit about his suffering and dying and so forth. And they just really don't even have a category for that. It's, it's almost like, you know, thinking about this from their perspective, they would not be able to understand the words of Jesus in anything else than in terms of defeat. So in other words, it's like Jesus is saying to them, well, it's been a good run, guys. I mean, at the end of the day, we've done some good work. We need to be thankful for that. You know, but now, time to be honest. You know, we're outnumbered. Maybe I could bring in the Butch Cassidy Sundance Kid thing. I don't know. I don't, let me not. Let me not. Um, just, <laughs> you just messed me up with that intro. Um, but, you know, there we go. So the, now, now, you know, Peter is thinking, well, I, don't say that. Don't say that. We're outnumbered and, you know, at least let's go out fighting. Let me cut someone's ear off with a sword or something. Let me just do that. I was aiming for his head, missed it, got his ear, you know. Uh, you know, he wants to at least go out swinging. Why are you talking like that, Jesus? That's defeatist. So that's happening. Finally, just to kind of lay the scene, John the Baptist had already had this moment, and they, I think, are having a similar sort of moment where, you know, John the Baptist, he's, he's the one that identified Jesus for crying out loud. He himself saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus, and yet he knew that Jesus is the Messiah that would set the captives free, and then there he is in prison, you know, kind of wondering, wait a minute, how does this work exactly? Just Can you just go ask Jesus if he's the one, or should we ask for another? Or how? He's having a moment. And of course, we know Jesus sends word back to him and it is sufficient for him to have worked through and not have been offended by that. But the disciples are going through that process at this point, which would have been very scary, very unnerving at this point. So you could summarize all of that by saying that their hearts are troubled, right? And that sets it up for seeing why these words are so important. As Jesus encourages them. And so what I want to do as we go through this little passage is just firstly talk about the meaning of the passage itself. Just talk about what is he actually saying here? What is the, what is the meaning of these words? Right? Just to understand that to begin with. And then I think it's important also to just spend a little bit of time in thinking about how the disciples themselves would have received this and been encouraged by these words. And then once we've done that, that work and that groundwork, we can, I think, finally see, and it flows like a river at that point, I think, we could see how it applies to our own lives, right? So that's the goal, just three points of flow there. Um, firstly, let's talk about the meaning of the passage. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And I think what's happening there is that Jesus is saying, all right, this is not a time for wishful thinking or just general optimism. There's only one thing that's going to carry you through, and that's faith. But faith is not like faith in faith, cell, you know, faith in faith and faith in good feelings and so forth. Faith rests on an object. Believe in God and believe also in me. In other words, believe in God and what he has already revealed himself to be through Jesus. Believe in the Old Covenant. Believe in the Old Testament. Believe in what is now transpiring through what has been revealed in Jesus' ministry as well. And as they do that, they will start to increasingly realize that what they're 
about to enter into is not the end of the road as a group that's outnumbered, but rather the very goal of the road itself, right? And this is where it ties in with what we were saying throughout the weekend, that this is a goal that has been set up from the very beginning. In fact, we were just talking about it pre-service. Eschatology precedes soteriology. There's the goal that God has put into place from the very beginning to dwell with him in Sabbath glory. And what they're about to enter into is not the end of the road and defeat. It's the beginning of the road and the goal of history, the beginning of eternity, the beginning of the new creation, the beginning of the new humanity. It couldn't be more opposite to what they were thinking as they dwell upon these words. So verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, again, I think he's saying, I'm not backing away from the fact that I'm going to die. But that doesn't mean the end. That means the beginning. But note that, note how gently he's moving them forward here. Like he's not saying, all right, guys, we've been through this. Turn to Kelvin's Institutes, page 356, please. I don't know if there are that many pages in Kelvin's Institutes. But, you know, turn there. Don't you know that this is now the moment in which we're bringing to completion the twofold Adamic structure of, the, of God's plan of redemption? Don't you know that? Or even better, Meredith Klein you know, please turn to Kingdom Prologue. And don't you see this is the alpha plan of the Omega Spirit concerning the indoxation of the glory realm and thereby bringing the fulfillment of the eschatological intrusion to the moments of two-level typology we've experienced thus far? Hmm? <laughs> you know, I, well, you know, I, I, I would like that. I would be very encouraged if he said, no, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> He, uh, you know, that would be of no help to them at all, right? In fact, not even that, but even if you go to the book of Hebrews with its more developed idea of Sabbath and, and its theology, even that would be too much for them at this point. They're already on tilt. They're just trying to process this stuff. Jesus is the Messiah, and yet he must suffer. This is, this is where they're at. And this is kind of why I want to come to this text, because this is why it's so perfect. Because Jesus is going to teach them and encourage them with every single part of that theology. I just spouted off there. That is exactly what he's going to do. But he's going to do it in only the way Jesus can, distilling it all to its very essence, in its most simple form, and encouraging the disciples in this moment of crisis with this. So I think that's so amazing. And, you know, this, again, can only be achieved by the Lord himself. That's what makes these words so so precious. Even before we get to the meaning, even the demeanor of the words, right? I mean, you know, I was thinking about it. If I was, was going to encourage, like at this time, you know, oh, brothers, we're going through something terrible. This is crazy. Pat, you know, what are we going to do? Let's, let's, let's get a Bible out. Let's look at the words of God. Let's rely on the Bible. You know, I'm, that's how we're encouraging each other. We're both fragile creatures and we're, we're trying to lean on something solid. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look at me. Right? That's not the way we encourage each other. And it's almost as if he's saying, I know that you're scared. I know that you're confused. But I want you to just consider I have never let you down even once. Am I going to start doing that now? I love what uh, 
one guy said in the commentary, in spite of the threatening circumstances, Jesus spoke with calm assurance of the divine provision for them. And he took for granted that they would have a place in the eternal world. Jesus never, even for a moment, speculated about a future life. He spoke, rather, as one who was as familiar with eternity as one is with his hometown. That's powerful. So he's saying, look at me and think very deeply about the words that I'm about to tell you. And, and so let's think about the words, because it's not just the demeanor. That, that itself is calming, right? But the actual theological point is the real thing that we need to focus on and what he draws them into. So verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, in terms of context, of course, you're dealing there with a Palestinian setting. I told my kids about this in many rooms, and they're like, why would we want to live with you, Dad? That's weird. What's going on? Well, uh, you know, again, this is not a foreign experience of being at home that he's trying to, you know, picture for them. It wouldn't be uncommon, and it would be ideal if you were living in the father's house, you know, even as a married man, woman, and so forth. And that was just a norm, you know, for, for the day. So you got, that's important because he's he's saying... I want you to think of homeness, not a weird experience of foreign travel, but homeness, all right? And um, maybe the issue is exasperated a little bit when we, um, when we read of the King James Version, in the King James Version, that in my father's house are many mansions. And that's weird. Like, how do you even fit a mansion in a house anyway? Like, how do you do that? You know, again, question from my kids. You know, they keep you honest. But it... Uh, it does feel a bit strange, you know, when he says that. And that's, that's an immediate problem for our interpretation because that's not the point. We're not meant to go, oh, wow, what a weird scenario. He's saying, don't worry, guys, there's something really weird coming up. You know, some really weird thing that you can't understand. That's like absolutely not what he's doing. The, even the word, the, the King James Version uses uh, mansio, from the Latin mansio, which used to mean a place to rest along the way. Right now it means richy rich, right? Big pimping houses and stuff. And at the end of the day, that's again not what not what Jesus is on about. He's not talking about one day, guys, you'll have something super affluent, and uh, you'll just be amazed at how big your house is. Now we know prosperity gospel preachers have got hold of that, right? And have done all sorts of things there. And we have to be careful of that because on the one hand, you want to avoid crass over literalizations of this, right? But on the other hand, you want to not under-literalize this either. Thinking about the over-literalization first, I mean, just first, what is amazing to me is that the word he uses for room, or rooms in this instance, is uh, not found anywhere in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Think about your Old Testament. It's a lot of words there. You think a, a word like this would appear at some point, but nowhere. And then in the New Testament... There's only one other word, only one other time that we see this word, and that's in this very same chapter. Uh, if you just go on to verse 23, there it is. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home. There's the same word in the accusative, with him. So that's interesting, because that's... Obviously talking about a covenantal union and the privilege of abiding in God's presence. And so that, that needs to factor in. It's definitely not about Richie Rich. 
It's about this privilege of abiding in God's presence, the ultimate safety and refuge one could ever imagine in that sense, right, immediately. And then you go to the classical Greek, and they do use this word a few times, and you see it's fairly consistent in that it all tries to capture the essence of homeness. So think about it. Uh, you know, for example, one all of the scholars said, think about the way that you enjoy that old sitting room where your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters and the whole family gathered at night about the fire. Think about that. Or, you know, that's quite a quaint scenario. You might not have a fireplace. But think about, think about the, your thing. What makes home home to you? What is the favorite thing? About home to you. Is it that time that you go to bed and you're like, I love this pillow so much. You know, and you close the door and you just, the world fades on you and that that's home. Or is it like hanging out with your family after dinner? Or is it, you know, what is it? What is that thing? Well, in this word's use, we would have to say that Jesus is saying, let not your heart be troubled. For in my father's house are many places like that. So at very minimum, what we have to take from that is that this is not talking about wealth. And, you know, don't worry, there will be extreme wealth coming up in mansions in heaven, right? So just make sure you're getting rid of that idea. It's not talking about foreignness. That's the opposite of the point. It's talking about homeness, right? But in the same instance, we have to make sure not to under-literalize this either. Because when we talk about homeness, and we've already alluded to this idea, we've been talking about it all weekend, really, uh, when we talk about home, we're talking about a certain thing in redemptive history and biblical theology and the Bible, right? The home, uh, man's home and destiny is to be with God in Sabbath glory, right? The renewed cosmos. That's not, that's not under-literalizing it. That's very, very real, right? You are dealing there with a place set up on the seventh day, if you, if you remember Saturday's session, uh, a place forfeited by Adam, a place entered into by the last Adam. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Uh, while invisible to us now, it, it is a place that will be visible to uh, to us at the end. It's a place where already Jesus now in bodily form rules and reigns from. It's where those who have died are. It's where the angels dwell. It's heavenly Mount Zion. It's the place that we'll, we'll see when the sky peels back like a scroll. And I could keep going on. You get the point. It's real. And so that's the first thing we have to pay attention to in terms of this meaning. Now, with that in mind, let's think about how the disciples received it. Because I think if we set that in place, we're on the right track. How did the disciples receive this as it led to the death and resurrection in these forthcoming hours? Because on the one hand, it wasn't obvious, obvious to them. Right, You see that by Thomas's response, and there's still all these questions. It's not like plainly before them. But the other mistake we could make is thinking that they have no idea what's going on. Like there's just no hope for them to get what Jesus is doing, a Yoda kind of thing, and, and, and no one could even figure this out even if they tried. It's a riddle, you know. Uh, that's not the point either, right? They were to think about this. But they would grow in their clarity in the hours that followed and the days that followed. They don't have their King James versions either. So they're not even thinking like 
mansions. The the thought of a mansion is not even occurring to them, right? They're thinking home, and as Jewish men, they're right on track, because home and Sabbath, you just can't even, like, it'd be impossible to separate those ideas. So they are ready. In fact, we're kind of catching up to them on that point. There they are, thinking about Sabbath, obviously. And then what is further the case, and maybe this is something that we, we have to do our homework on, but again, would be so natural for them. It's impossible for them to, to not think of the temple. Because here's the point that we need to remind ourselves of. The whole point of the temple is the Sabbath. So Sabbath and temple are like hand in hand. Why is there a temple? It's so that Israel can be in Sabbath. It's like a mini Eden. A little symbolic Eden where the priest takes you into the Sabbath realm, representing the nation. That's the whole point of the temple. That's why they are in Sabbath. That's why they have Sabbath. That's why they have hope and so forth. It's connected to this gospel promise. And so what we see is that Jesus starts to use two analogies as he encourages them. And why I think this is worth preaching on is because, you know, both of those analogies are potentially quite evasive to us because of just our cultural distance. Again, the temple analogy, which we'll talk about, and then a wedding analogy as well is in this. And, and Jesus is blending the two powerfully to give them this encouragement. So let's have a look at how this works. Remember, the whole point, again, of the temple is the Sabbath. Imagine that you went to the Day of Atonement as a Jewish person, and there, I mean, the, 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 the scripture that is on your heart, you've memorized it, you've had to memorize it, is Exodus twenty-eight twenty-nine. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece uh, of the judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord as he takes them into the Sabbath realm. Right, And they, they would, on a yearly basis, watch this Adam figure, which is what the high priest was, this representative figure. They would watch him, take them representatively with him into this place representing Eden and pass through, pass the menorah lampstand, the tree of life, through the veil, pass the cherubim woven onto the veil, into the very holy place of God. Remember the smoky veil, the incense is burning there. Pass that veil into the very throne room of God and then he would return. And they would see this again and again and they would know that the high priest doesn't just go in, he would come out and bring them atonement. If he goes in, he's going to return. And what's also amazing to me is uh, that Jewish historian Josephus, you know, shows us that at this time they were very much already thinking about this whole thing in terms of a vertical slot. So imagine, imagine you, you had a little toy model tabernacle temple thing. You know, you sometimes see them designed and they're kind of made out of those matchboxes or whatever. And there it is. Okay, and you're seeing all the symbols and some. There's the the menorah lampstand. There's the veil. There's the everything. And then you put it vertically. They're like, that's important to do because the high priest, in a very real sense, is not only going horizontally toward the end of history. He's going vertically. He's, he's leaving the waters below. He's going through all these symbolic elements, and he's entering past the smoky veil, piercing the very throne room of God, making atonement there, and then descending, returning with salvation in his hands. 
right? So, I mean, they were thinking like this. They had this concept already. In fact, um, I, I found this uh, quote. This is extra biblical literature. This is Jewish uh, 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 literature. But it describes for us in the book of Sirach, if you want to go follow that up. But it's, uh, it's describes for us how they would have felt when they saw the high priest returning, which, again, we need help with to catch up with the disciples, right? This is what it says. Listen to this. How glorious he was, talking about the high priest when he came out, when the people gathered round him as he came out of the inner sanctuary, like the morning star among the clouds, like the moon when it is full, like the sun shining upon the temple of the Most High, and like the rainbow gleaming in glorious clouds, like the fire and incense in the censer, like a vessel of hammered gold adorned with all kinds of precious stones, like an olive tree putting forth its fruit. Wow. I mean, that definitely brings it forth. That's how glad they were. Why? Because he's bringing salvation in his hands as atonement. The priest has come out and we are forgiven. And I've recently preached through Hebrews and realized that that is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. When he uses this metaphor, he says in Hebrews 9, verse 23, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, that was the way in, right? Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. They knew, uh, the Hebrews knew, this was us in the outer court, waiting for the high priest to return. So, you know, keep in mind that the disciples, this is before Jesus went to the cross, and the disciples still had more understanding that they needed, but we're catching up to them. That's actually what's happening. They knew this stuff, right? And so what Jesus says in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place, home, Sabbath, for you, I will come again. It's hard to get away from what he's saying at that point. So that's the, that's the temple metaphor. But let's see what he does with the wedding metaphor as well. Because he weaves them together. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Again, we might miss the, the wedding idea here because the way we do it, as you know, is, uh, you know, we caught and then get engaged and, and then some shorter engagement periods, I hear. So, some, some longer ones. Uh, but typically we'd only get married or the, the actual covenant vows will take place on the wedding day, right? And then the honeymoon and the consummation and so forth, right? But the way they did it was, you got betrothed, right? You got married, in a sense. The vows were made right up front. That would be the engagement, so to speak. But that's the actual wedding. That's the, that's the, that's the covenant making. And then, typically, a time of separation followed, where the groom would go away and prepare a place for them in the father's house. And, and, and then, they needed bridesmaids to be, to be watchful and to, to be ready for when the groom comes with the procession. And then he would take the, the, the bride and they would go and live in the father's house. So, I mean, this is very obvious stuff for them. It's not like, I mean, they've seen this a thousand times in their liturgies and in their weddings, right? And both of them are before them in terms of what's, what's being said. So they knew the reference. And soon they would realize that what the cross was, was Jesus' betrothal to them. Right, It was the wedding vows in his own blood 
He's about to be married to them, as it were. And as surely then, as one who would go away after, I mean, who ever heard of a bridegroom that would get married and then go away and not return for his bride? That's the whole point. That's what he wanted to do. Same thing with a priest. Who ever heard of a priest that went in to make intercession that wouldn't come out again? To bring them salvation in his hands. And that's what he's saying to them. And that's what they can already start grasping at. Now, they didn't know how all of this tied together in Jesus and the cross, right? That's what they didn't yet know. But they also didn't know that they already knew all that they needed to know so that as soon as that happened, they would know, right? If that makes sense. And so I think that's why Jesus is saying, verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. Because as soon as they already know Jesus and he's just the missing link to put it all together. And as soon as they realize this, they realize they already know. Right? And all these ideas would be fulfilled in him. Now, it's also true the penny had not quite dropped. And you see this was Thomas. He says, Lord, uh, we do not know where you are going. How can we? It feels like me when my navigator stops working. You know, I... Uh, I don't know where I'm going. How can I know? I don't have a map. I must have been absent that day when you told us where you were going. Like, what is the deal? I don't know how to do this. But again, you see how Jesus doesn't get angry with them and go, okay, well, fine. Then we go back to Kelvin's Institutes. You know, it's, it just simply boils it down to its essence and says, verse 6. Now, be careful. you gotta got to get this right. Verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think he means something very specific in light of all that we've been saying. I am the way is the way that the high priest or that God has made through the tabernacle that the high priest travels. That's the way. The way past the cherubim, the flaming sword, into the throne room of God. That's the way he's talking about. I am the way. He's the temple. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest. He's he's the whole thing. It's all pointing to him. I am the truth, right? Again, something very specific. I'm the culmination of the, it's not just truth in general. It's truth revealed through the scriptures, through the prophets, everything that has been revealed. I am that. I am the life, very specifically, is talking about the tree of life. I am the Sabbath. I am the life that was held out before Adam at the beginning. I am that. You know the way if you know me. You know the truth if you know me. You know life if you know me. And they are as secure as they could ever be because they know Jesus. But they have to wait for a little while longer. And just like a bride must wait for the bridegroom. They even have a category for this. right? There has to be a little bit of time of waiting. A little bit of time of suspense, and it is. It's suspenseful, and it's, you kind of wish it was over, but there it is. You have to wait. And they even got the parables and all these things that Jesus draw on. You know, make sure you're ready. All like those in the outer courts, waiting for the high priest. You have to wait a little bit until he comes out. Except now you don't have to wait with fearful dread and anticipation. That his sacrifice might not be acceptable. That his ministry might not be acceptable. 
for Jesus is the perfect high priest. And you don't have to worry about, you know, the bridegroom going somewhere else because Jesus has made his vows in his own blood. So now they only have to wait. Now, here's where it gets crazy. Okay, you got that all in play. Now we're sort of bridging over to think about how it applies to us. But you got that preceding passage where Jesus says what? Directly before this passage that we just read. I was tempted to read it, but, you know, you can read it. There it is in your Bible. Uh, just before we get to this, it's about what? It's about Peter's denial that Jesus predicts. Now, that is a massive failure on Peter's part, right? That's not a small thing. Peter's like, I can come with. I will lay my life down for you. No problem. Whatever it is. And Jesus says, listen, Peter, Peter, before he says all this, this is what's going to happen. You're going to deny me again and again and again. Now, was he just, was Jesus trying to make Peter feel bad? What was the deal there? And then why would he say right after that, all that we've been saying now? I think there's a really important reason for that. Because... Jesus is not saying that, okay, I'm about to make a way, I'm about to go away, I'm about to do all these things so that you can have hope, so that your hearts can be comforted, predicated on the reality or based upon the condition that you don't wipe out. Because if you deny me three times, it's over. Which is exactly what they would have thought if Jesus hadn't said it this way. He says, Peter, I know with crystal clarity the very worst of your sins. And now let me tell you this. You are 100% secure. Not because of anything you're doing, clearly. But because of everything that I'm about to go and do as a high priest and as your bridegroom. And as soon as the penny drops on that one, it will be these very words that keep them in absolute security doesn't matter that they sinned and have failed. That's not why they're secure. They're secure because Jesus has betrothed them. He will come back for them. They're secure because he has made priestly intercession for them. And the priest will come back with salvation in his hands. And so with that in mind, let's think about how this applies for us. Because it happened. Jesus went to the cross His flesh was ripped, the veil was torn, a way was made, the cherubim stood aside. That which was beckoned to by the tree of life can now be entered into in the holiest of holies. All that is in God's Sabbath realm, that place, the Father's house, we now have access through Jesus' death and resurrection. And three days later, he was resurrected. And he stood before them. And then can you imagine being the disciples, seeing the high priest ascend, literally, ascend vertically, piercing the veil, piercing the clouds and going into the very throne room of God. They saw it with their own eyes, right? They know that he is going As one who has married them with his own blood. The one who has ascended into the throne room of God as their high priest and representative. Carrying them with him. And then the understanding was given as the spirit marked Jesus' final 
coronation and moment upon the throne, the spirit is given in and the church has understanding. And we know the story and the, they can't stop preaching from that point. And it's like, wow, Peter starts and everything. And we've got these little snippets of their preaching. And the book of Hebrews is one such latest snippet, right? A sermon where we read in Hebrews 10, verse 19. Imagine just how excited they are preaching this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full Assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed. That's all the stuff that Jesus showed them before. Washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So what the author of Hebrews is doing there is pointing back to the very thing that Jesus is pointing forward to. Leaving us with a double barrel reinforcement as to how this applies right now. Right? How does it apply Jesus? Because he, what he has done in the death, resurrection, and ascension means that you have every single thing that you need to have your heart be comforted. No matter what comes your way. Because you know the way. And nothing can take you away. And that doesn't depend on your understanding. We have to wait a little bit longer, right? We still, we have to wait. We're like the bride waiting for the bridegroom. We're like those outside waiting for the high priest to return. But our security doesn't come from our understanding. And sometimes we feel like Thomas, right? We all have those days, months, years, perhaps. It's like, what is going on? Lord, I don't understand why he would do things like this. Why is this this way? I don't understand what this thing in the Bible is saying. How does this fit with this? And, and how is this happening in my life? And how are you speaking to me? How are you not speaking? What am I doing? You know, sometimes we feel like that, right? I definitely feel like that. I hope I'm not the only one. Otherwise, I need to, you know, confess. But that, that, is, that is definitely a thing for Christianity. But you're not saved by your understanding. You're saved by Jesus who did these things. So when you feel like Thomas, remember that. In other instances, we feel like Peter. And we should feel like Peter sometimes because we do fail. Badly. Again. And again. And again. But we need to know that our hope and security and comfort at those times does not depend upon whether we failed or not failed. For what is true year of Peter is not only true year of Peter. Jesus knows every single thing that you have done and not done and failed in before all of this happened. And tells you, tells Peter, tells us that he knows And then goes loving us to the cross to secure everything that we need so that nothing can take us away. Not our confusion, not our sin, not our shame, nothing. What depends, what what our comfort depends upon is whether Christ is in heaven or not. And whether 
the Spirit would ever leave Christ or not. Right? Not our fear, not our failure. You have everything that you need in Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know the way, and you this morning can know that you have a dwelling place with the Father and the Son for all eternity. You have Sabbath rest with God forever and ever. In Jesus' name. Amen? All right, let's pray one more time and then I'll hand over. Father, we thank you so much for words that we don't deserve, but words that we now live our lives based upon. We thank you for the great comfort in life and in death and everything in between. We don't know what's coming. We don't know sometimes what's happening and there are difficult providences. Sometimes there are things that we really struggle under. And yet, this morning we remind ourselves of this great truth and the thing with which you would comfort your people. That if we know you, we are safe. And we thank you, Lord, for saving us and keeping us in this refuge. Hold us there and call us to all that you have planned for us. Give us grace, fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.